Well, it's the happiest place on earth. But no, I'm not talking this morning about Disney World or Disneyland. No, the place I'm talking about is not actually in the United States of America at all. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that Nordic place of joy and happiness, the country of Finland. Has anybody here been to Finland, by the way? Okay, I can't really, I haven't either, so I can't verify whether or not this is true. But according to the, the folks over at the World Happiness Report, Finland is regarded as the happiest country in the world. The least happy country in the world is, is Afghanistan, and, and perhaps for, for reasons that, that make perfect sense. But what I find interesting is, as I, as I look through some of the facts there in the World Happiness Report, is how they calculate their findings. Now, how do you decide what is the happiest country in the world? You walk around and see, like, who's smiling, who's not. Do you go around and, like, look at Facebook posts and be like, they have more smiles? How do you do this? Well, here's what they do. First, they have a, a survey sample of respondents in, in all of the countries they're surveying, and they ask how they would rate their lives on a scale of zero, zero being it's horrible, and 10 being it really couldn't get much better. So kind of a subjective, how do you feel your life is going kind of thing. So not just about emotions, but you, your life as a whole. Second, they look at following six criteria. They look at GDP, so basically how wealthy a particular country is. They look at social support, what kind of sort of social programs are there to help people who are in need. They look at life expectancy, freedom, they look at generosity, that's an interesting measure, and last of all, corruption. That's a really interesting study worth looking at to see uh, where various countries fall on that. But what I find fascinating is what this study assumes about happiness. It assumes that happiness is not merely an emotion, but it's about a life condition. Ultimately, you say, okay, yeah, we're going to have ups and downs about how we feel, but people's quality in life and what they would want. To most people today, happiness, or if you will, more philosophically, human flourishing, what it means to live the good life, can be measured in terms of GDP, life expectancy, personal freedom, and then that subjective sense of life is going well for me. It's generally assumed today that the more resources you have, the healthier you are, the better your life will be. The less pain you feel, the more years you live, the more fun you have, the more memories you make, the more well-liked you are, then the happier you will be. Everyone on this planet, everyone since the Garden of Eden, has tried to ask and answer that question, what does it mean to truly live the good life, to have a, a life where there is not just a fleeting feeling of happiness, but that genuine sense of well-being? People in Jesus' day were no different. The Jews in Jesus' day were longing for the kingdom. We read about that in Isaiah 61, when everything's going to be restored and the waste places will be rebuilt. People in the, in the Greek world were longing for the, what is the good life, and they wrestled with that. How can we be really, truly happy? How can humans truly flourish? What is the good life? As we come to Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus is answering that question in a way that nobody else in, in human history has answered that. He's going to use this term blessed, which we often think that word blessed is God's favor, but the word here has the sense of, of, of happiness, of people looking at you being like, that person's got it together. That's the person when you're like, man, I wish I could be them. That's what this word means. Not just an emotion, not just, oh, God has given me favor, but the sense of, of well-being, of having it together, of being the person whose life 
is the good life. So follow along as we read Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. So Jesus is being portrayed here as a new Moses. Like Moses goes up Mount Sinai, Jesus goes up the mountain. And when he was seated, when he was set, it's not just he's kind of in place, but when he sat down like a rabbi, like an authoritative teacher, his disciples came unto him. Okay, we noted last week there's sort of two levels of audience here. There's the disciples, those who have already believed in him, who have repented, who have accepted him as Messiah. And there's also the crowds who are listening. It's the end of the sermon. They have a reflection on, on what the sermon is like. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, kind of a redundant thing to say. Why not just say, and he began his message. They say, what he's about to say is solemn. This is the first of five major sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is sort of Jesus' inaugural address, saying, this is what my kingdom, what my rule looks like. Blessed, happy, flourishing, envied, congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hey, familiar words, it's easy, the blessed of the poor in spirit. That would have been like what you're saying, the poverty, that, that's not something the people in the ancient world looked at as a good thing, even humility, that was not a virtue. So Jesus is like, what you guys would all look at and say, that's not the good life. It's like, there's the good life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? For because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the, me the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children or the sons of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you, ye, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. The, the, the passage of Scripture we're going to begin looking at this week, also next week, is known as the Beatitudes. That, that term Beatitude is just the Latin translation of the Greek word makarios. has the same idea of this is the person who is blissful, who is happy, the person that others would look at and be like, there's the good life. What Jesus is doing is laying out a way of life. He's laying out a set of characteristics that most people in the world would not look at and call good. And he is commending it to us by saying the people who look like that, they're the ones who are blessed. And he's telling us why. So when we're talking about today the pursuit of happiness, we're not talking about just the feeling, I want to have like a sort of emotional high, but that state of well-being, what does it look like? What is this life in God's kingdom? What is it measured by? Now, something that we need to understand here, these are not sort of, you know, they're, they're, there's nine statements of blessing. The last one is sort of repeating the eighth. So these are not sort of eight different kinds of people. Well, there's the poor in spirit, and then there's people who are mourned. No, these are eight characteristics that define the disciple of Jesus. These are eight characteristics that define the true Christian. 
You notice verse 3, we have blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they have the kingdom. Okay? And then notice now down in verse 10, where we come to the, the last of these. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because theirs is the kingdom. That gives us kind of a bracket, a beginning and an end to say, this is a description of people who are citizens of the kingdom. This is a description of people who are the disciples of Jesus. These are the descriptions of those who are genuine believers. Okay, so we need to understand, this is not just a description of some people or eight different kinds of people. This is what Jesus expects of all of his followers. This is not for, sometimes in the Middle Ages, they would look at this and be like, you know what, this is good for the priests or the monks. Ordinary Christians can't live like this. No, this is the ordinary Christian life. This is what Christians should look like. And those who do, he says, those are the ones who are truly blessed, truly happy, truly enviable. So what we're going to get here this week and next week are eight values that mark every Christian, or should mark every Christian, Eight values that define the truly good life. If we were to survey people, what is the good life? I think they would go back and look at some stuff like we saw on the the World Happiness Report. People might even, if they wanted to be somewhat more serious, they would be like, okay, it's not just about GDP and life expectancy. It's about family. I'd say maybe genuine, lasting, real, the really good life. It's about having a, a network of friends. They would say, you know, being liked by people, being loved by people, Jesus is like, no, it's actually being persecuted for righteousness. People would say, having it all together and not really wanting anything, Jesus says, no, no, it's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Never being sad, Jesus actually knows those who mourn. Just taking the, the normal values of our world and completely flipping them on their head. Now, I read verses 13 to 16 as well, because these go hand in hand with it. It's often yanked apart as its own little unit. People who live like this will be the salt of the earth, will be the light of the world. To live as the Beatitudes define is to be radically countercultural. Radically countercultural. Take all the values of the world, whether the values that are espoused on the right or the left, and the Sermon on the Mount completely subverts both of them. This is a, a way of living in the world that is unlike anything that is in the world. It's a way, you say, we, don't, we, are, we are not to be worldly. Okay, what does that mean? It means living the Beatitudes. So setting this out here, this is how we are meant to be. This is what we should look, at, look like. Last thing I want to note here, sort of by way of introduction, actually a couple of things I want to note. But notice primarily these are qualities. They're not so much actions. Jesus does not say eight sort of habits or practices, or if you check these boxes one point in your life, you, you got it. This is about character. This is about who you are. Now there's a few different ways you can divide this. You can just look and say, okay, there's nine statements of blessed and they're just in no particular order. I think there is an order. The first and the last one both have that theirs is the kingdom that kind of give us a, a structure. You'll notice as well, um, verse 6, blessed are those which hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Gives us two sets. If you think of Jesus going up the mountain like Moses going up the mountain, think of the Ten Commandments. It's divided into a set of commandments that deal with our vertical relationship. And then the next set have to do with our horizontal. So no other gods before me, vertical relationship. And then it goes, you know, starting with honor father and mother, your human relationships. I think you can divide the Beatitudes the same way. The first four deal with our relationship with God. Dependence on God, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 
And then the second set had to do with how we relate to others, being merciful, being sincere, pure in heart, being peacemakers, restoring relationships, then being persecuted by the world. The way, when our relationships with God are right, it will influence our relationships with other, with other people. Hey, with all of that introduction to the side, let's jump in and start looking at what does Jesus say is the truly good life? What does he say is the essence and the, the, the prerequisite for true blessedness? Well, the first one is this, the truly blessed, the truly happy, the truly flourishing person is poor in spirit, is dependent upon God. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is first because this is absolutely foundational to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about how paradoxical this is. The characteristic of the truly good life, the genuinely happy, the enviable person is being poor. Nobody would be, nobody in Jesus' day would have been like, ah, yes. Now, we've had so many centuries of Christian influence that we sort of now have this idea that like, well, you know, the, the monks and the Middle Ages and people who are just doing things for altruistic, they didn't have any of that. Most people in Jesus' day, as in ours, believed that, that wealth in every way was the basis for happiness and a sign of divine favor. There's still people running around this morning who might even be preaching behind pulpits who will say, man, if you really love God, he'll give you stuff. But notice it doesn't just say poor, it says poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. What, what is going on here with this? He is not talking primarily about material poverty. He's not just saying, well, people who have less are just sort of more favored by God. Not saying that at all. He's saying this is a, about, a, about a spiritual condition. So that word that's, that's translated poor um, is not just someone who doesn't have as much as someone else. It's kind of how we use the word poor today. If some people have less than other people, therefore they are poor. This is an objective idea of being completely dependent on others, having no resources of your own, being a beggar. Being a beggar, being absolutely, utterly dependent upon God. It is a recognition of our condition of spiritual bankruptcy. It is a recognition that in regards to God, in, relation, in regards to my relationship with God, I'm coming with empty hands, with empty pockets, with absolutely nothing to bring to God. It is the idea of being contrite over sin, an idea, the idea of recognizing that I need grace. Now, let me just be clear here. To be poor in spirit, says, oh, someone's poor in spirit. They just don't have any spirit. They don't have any, they're just kind of a, ugh, kind of a wilting flower kind of. They, they just don't have any backbone. That, that's not what the word means. It's not that they lack they, they, they lack zest for life or energy. Jesus had all kinds of energy and, and lived life to the fullest. No, no, no. We're not talking about financial destitution. We're not talking about a lack of courage. We're certainly not talking about the absence of the Holy Spirit or a lack of spirituality. Rather, we're talking about a recognition that when it comes to my relationship with God, I am utterly dependent on Him for everything. Now, standing behind this is the the Old Testament. Jesus is not coming up with new things here. He's not saying, okay, the Old Testament's garbage. I'm coming up with new stuff. No, he is explaining what was there all along. In the Old Testament, we had the idea of the, the poor, the pious poor, the poor. This poor man cried, and you heard him, Psalm 34, is the one who is totally dependent on God. So when he uses the word poor, he's already thinking people dependent on God. But we even have this idea in Isaiah. Let me read you some verses from Isaiah. So much of this is a basically a commentary on the second half of Isaiah, particularly the passage that Jim read earlier. But just listen to this, Isaiah 57, verse 15. 
Thus saith the high and holy, uh, the, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God's saying, the person that I dwell with, the one who's going to be in my kingdom, is the one who's humble and contrite, the one who sees themselves as a sinner. We get the same idea over in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. That term poor already comes into the New Testament with this this understanding. We're talking about a condition before God, about humility and abject dependence upon God. Now, the opposite of being poor in spirit? Well, the opposite of being poor in spirit is being self-righteous. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will contrast real righteousness with the scribes, the Pharisees. They were pretty much convinced that we're coming to God and we're really coming on the basis of our own merit. And they had their sets of rules and regulations, and they they didn't see themselves as spiritually destitute. Rather, they saw themselves as, man, we're better than other people. To be poor in spirit is the opposite of self-righteousness. To be poor in spirit is the opposite of the pharisaical attitude of thinking that we can earn God's favor through works or that we are somehow better than other people. Okay, just think about this. If all of us are abjectly, totally, 100% dependent, then that means none of us are really any better than anyone else. It means all of us are in the same condition. We're all in the same boat of either we get God's grace or there's no hope for us. Here's the other point. Some people just kind of read, blessed are the poor in spirit for there's the kingdom of heaven and move on with the Sermon on the Mount and say, we can live the Sermon on the Mount oh, in our own strength, right? If we just try hard enough, we can do it. This very first beatitude is telling us right out of the gate, you can't do anything from Matthew 5, verse 3 onward in your own strength. All right? We're dependent on God. We have no strength of our own. Now, that's a necessary attitude before you become a Christian. If you're here today and you're like, I think of myself as a Christian, my question would be, have you come to a place of seeing yourself as a sinner who deserves nothing but God's wrath? Have you come to a place where you have realized that your works, your baptism, church membership, being a good person, growing up in a Christian home, doesn't get you into the kingdom? But notice, notice this, Jesus is not just saying, this is something you do and you get saved and you leave it behind. This is the continual attitude of the Christian. So one of the marks of the Christian is you continue to regard yourself as being poor in spirit. Now notice the promise with this. It says, happy, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Why, 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 why can we look at people who normally the world would look at and say, mm, poor, mm, that's not what we want to be. Dependent on God, that's not where we want to be. And say, they're, they're the ones who have the good life. Here's the reason, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the sense here in the Greek, it's emphatic. Theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. There's not just, yeah, the poor in spirit make it and other people make it. No, only the poor in spirit have the kingdom. The reason the poor in spirit are truly happy is not that they have somehow transcended suffering or have learned how to go without it like the the Stoics. No, it's this fact and this fact alone. They possess the kingdom. Think about what that means, who doesn't possess the kingdom. Well, the self-sufficient Pharisee, the person who is impressed with their own morality, they don't possess the kingdom. 
the, the Laodicean who says, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, they don't possess the kingdom. The key to entering the kingdom of Matthew 5.20 is to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 5 verse 3, that means recognizing you don't have it. Now, something I'll, I'll note here um, from the outset, a number of the promises that go along with the Beatitudes are put in the future tense, but this one is put in the present tense. So we're not just saying, okay, these people are happy now because one day, way down the road, things will get better for them. Saying, no, even right now, those who are poor in spirit, they have the kingdom. The kingdom's a present possession. The kingdom's not just heaven. There's some people, oh, the kingdom is heaven, and yeah, that's part of it. But the kingdom is living under the rule of God. It's being a citizen. We can be citizens of God's kingdom here and now, even as we await the final arrival of it down the road. So if this is something that is possessed by the poor, so here's something that people who have absolutely nothing get, that means they didn't pay for it. It means that kingdom citizenship and kingdom entrance is fundamentally, definitionally a gift. Not something we earn, not something we pay for, not something we achieve. Pharisees thought they could get it with their meticulous law-keeping. The zealots in Jesus' day, they were, they were sort of the ultra-nationalists. They thought they could bring the kingdom in by going around and killing a bunch of Romans. The Sadducees thought that they could bring the kingdom in by sort of, sort of uh, political compromise and cultural compromise with the powers of the day. Another group, the Essenes, they thought, no, we'll get the kingdom by completely withdrawing from the society and living in the desert. People today have the same categories. We'll get the kingdom by being good. We'll get the kingdom by being political. We'll get the kingdom by withdrawing from society. We'll get the kingdom through compromise. No, the kingdom comes as a gift. It's a question you have to ask yourself. Each of us have to ask ourselves, am I poor in spirit? Am I dependent upon God for his grace and his mercy? Or is there self-righteousness that's lurking in my heart? We move on to a second, second characteristic of the truly happy person is that he is repentant. Look at verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn. Now, th this really has a paradoxical ring. Happy are the, the unhappy, using those terms in a couple of different senses. Tr the truly good life, the person who is mourning, the person who is sorrowful. There's a real paradox there. Now, this flows from the first one. The first beatitude is, I see myself as dependent on God as having nothing. It then naturally follows that I would lament and mourn that condition. That's a really scary place to be when you're like, yep, I'm a sinner, and you go on with your life, and it doesn't bother you. The mourners are the truly blessed. Now, obviously, then, the, the, the true happiness we're talking about is not about feeling or emotion. It's about condition. And the mourning Jesus is talking about here is not the mourning of bereavement. Um, it is entirely natural to mourn when you lose something or someone you love. And God does have a compassion towards those who are mourning in that sense. But that's not what Jesus is addressing here in this particular verse. He's, again, the background of Isaiah here, as Jim read for us, are people who are mourning over sin. People who are seeing sin within them and in the society around them, and rather than turning away from it, are grieved over it. That's what Jesus is describing. For a lot of people today, the, the, the good life, if people picture the good life as sort of glib laughter, telling a lot of jokes, having a really good time, it's a, it's a life that is a fun time all the time. 
For most people, the good life does not include taking sin seriously or grappling with eternity. Most people try and avoid thinking about that. I even notice a trend within, within funerals at times where people were like, we're, we don't want to think too much about death. Let's, let's sort of throw a party and have a good time and send off some balloons because we don't want to think about the, how it makes us feel so uncomfortable to recognize our own mortality. Jesus is the disciple, his disciple, the citizen of his kingdom, the truly blessed person, is the person, rather than ignoring his sin, sees his sin and is contrite, is broken, mourns over it. Now, let me be very clear. Jesus is not commending sorrow for sorrow's sake, as if, like, the more holy you are, the more grumpy you will be. Some people get that idea of, I'm going to church now, and I'm going to be, we're going to be so reverent and holy. Uh, I heard joke about the, 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 the kid who saw a horse and said, the horse must be a Christian. Why? Because the horse has a long face. Like, that's not what Jesus is talking about, that truly, true holiness is to be a long face and walk around scowling all the time. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying mourn and just be sorrowful all the time. The Bible commends joy to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Here's the difference. The world's joy is based on jokes. It's based on frivolity. It's based on things that are shallow. The Christian's joy is based on God. The world's joy is based on ignoring the serious matters of sin and eternity. The Christian's joy has confronted those head on, has found the hope and the comfort that's in Christ, and therefore has a joy unspeakable, full of glory that, as we see in verse 12, can rejoice even in the face of suffering. So Isaiah 61 had talked about those who mourn in sackcloth and ashes, those who look around at Zion's destruction and they're grieved by it. That's who Jesus is referring to. Here's a question for you. What is your attitude towards sin? And I mean, first off, your, your own sin. It can be kind of a deflection to get very angry about sins out in society as a way to not think about our own. Right? He doesn't say, blessed are those who are angry about sin and thunder against it and, and call people names. No, no, he doesn't say that. Blessed are those who mourn, starting with their own sin. What is your attitude towards the sin that remains in your heart and life? You become a Christian, you don't just automatically go, no more sin. Like, that's not how it works. We don't just sort of quantum level up and, like, power up and get some special powers to where we no longer sin and we have armor against temptation. The whole Christian life is going to war against sin. Do you have a posture of war against sin? Do you have an attitude of, this is the, yes, there's sin in my life and I hate it and I want to get it off of me. Um, maybe this is a terrible illustration, but I'm going to go for it. The other day I was walking out to the, these are always bad. Um, I was walking out to my office, which is in the backyard, and I, I was going out, it's like four in the morning, and uh, the dog had left some stuff out in the yard that I stepped in. Nobody comes back into the house and be like, oh, that's fine, I'm just going to leave it on the shoe and track it all over the house. That'd be terrible. Like, what's your attitude? Is that is disgusting? Get it off of me. Like, I, what do I do to get this off the shoe? And you're getting a screwdriver and getting it out of all the treads. Let me tell you, those running shoes have tiny treads, and it is a pain in the neck to get dog poop off your shoe. The Christian's attitude towards sin is not like, hmm, I've got delicious chocolate on my fingers that I want to lick off. The Christian attitude towards sin is I have dog poop on my shoe, and I can't wait to get rid of it. Is your attitude towards a yuck, get this off of me, or a, this is fine, 
but a snack for later. Blessed are those who mourn. When you see sin, do you... I know we were just laughing at an illustration, but there's a difference between laughing at an illustration and laughing at sin. When you see sin around you, does it provoke a punchline or does it provoke grief? Psalm 119, verse 136, the psalmist says, My eye runs down because of those who don't keep your law. Not, I'm enraged that they would dare live differently. No, my, ah. Paul says, there are many of whom I tell you now, even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Sometimes we take great relish in in being like, well, these people are wrong here, 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 and here, and we don't feel any sorrow. Like there there is a place, a necessity for calling out and denouncing sin and and, and iniquity and, and untruth. But Paul's like, I'm telling you, even weeping. I warned you day and night with tears. Our Lord at the end of Matthew 23 says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem which kills the prophets and stones those who are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would not. There is a sorrow and this grief. Starting with our own hearts, but then sort of thinking about society around us. You think this weekend about, about racism. You say, oh, that's, you know, Whatever. Our hearts should grieve over racism that we see around us in society and sometimes even within the church of the living God. Come up next week on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And, you know, the issue of abortion has been turned into a political issue and and it has public ramifications. But as we think about the, the blood that is on the hands of our nation, and the, the lives that have been violently and cruelly destroyed. It should grieve us. It should cause us to mourn. We should long for a day when, when everything's going to be made new. When one day, one day there will be a perfect society where there is absolutely no sin. And because there's no sin, there will be no oppression. There will be no violence. There will be no racism. There will be no abortion. There will be no adultery. There will be no divorce. There will be no domestic abuse. We should long for that, even as we grieve now. And that's the second half of the verse. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Going all the way back again to Isaiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. What's the comfort? The comfort is coming in the the one who is coming to deliver Israel and the nations from their sin. The comfort comes in Isaiah 61, verse 1. I've come to pronounce good tidings, good news, gospel. Jesus himself declared the gospel, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see Jesus in the gospels providing comfort this way. They, a couple of guys rip the roof off a house, and they bring a man who is lame. And Jesus looks at him and says, thy sins be forgiven thee. No, nobody spoke that way. We're going to come along and be like, your sin's the greatest problem in your life? Forgiven just like that on the basis of faith. Or for the woman who was weeping and washing his feet with her tears, it says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's comfort. If you recognize the greatest problem in this world, the greatest problem in your life is sin, the comfort that God brings is the greatest comfort that could be possibly brought to you. 
And why is it that those who mourn and they alone are the ones who are truly flourishing? It's unlike those who ignore sin and glibly giggle about it. They're the ones who are going to enjoy God's comfort, enjoy God's forgiveness now and forever. The day is going to come, okay, future tense. The day is going to come where we stand before God on judgment day. And yes, even now I'm justified and declared righteous, but there will be the final, come on home, enter into my presence that we will experience. For those who are looking around at society, and you see the brokenness and you're like, this grieves me and burdens me and I want to do something about this and do something about it, we should. But one day we know that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We know that one day he is going to remove the curse. He's going to bring an everlasting peace. He's going to wipe away a tear from our eyes. He's going to swallow up death and victory. He's going to lead us into everlasting joy upon our heads. We who now mourn over sin will eternally rejoice in glory and holiness. That means, beloved, the joy we have is not just the superficial, oh, there was a funny joke last night on late night TV, ha ha, but it's a serious joy. The joy we have is a holy joy. So do you mourn over sin? Do you mourn over the brokenness in our society, in our world, and long for it to be made new? Come to a third characteristic. Again, notice how these build. I see who I am before God. I mourn over the problem in my life and society more broadly. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek. What does this word meekness mean? Sometimes people hear the word meek and they think of someone who's just kind of a wimp. Uh, this word is used primarily in Scripture to describe Christ. Come unto me, all ye who labor, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Yet we see Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke as one who had authority. This is the same one who could say to a storm, peace be still, and it's... This is one who could raise the dead. This is the one who created the world. This is the one who's coming back one day to rule and reign. This doesn't mean wimpy. This doesn't mean weak. What it does mean is gentle. What it does mean is humble and considerate. So here, how is this different than being poor in spirit? Poor in spirit is sort of like I'm humble before God. This is sort of what this looks like in my interactions as that plays out in my life. Poverty of spirit deals with one's view of himself. This deals with my relationships towards God, towards circumstances. So you see yourself as God sees you, it will change the way that you deal with other people. I'm using the word tolerant here. There's one of those words that has been completely shredded and maligned and chewed up and and ruined by the way it's used. I'm I'm using this in in its best positive sense. One who has a, a, a kind, gentleness, tolerance towards people. So people come and wrong you, rather than lashing out and be like, I'm going to just smack you upside the head. The meek person is able to recognize one day God's going to reverse this. Right? I can rest in him. I don't have to lash out. I can respond in gentleness when I am wronged. Tolerance, to be clear, does not mean tolerant of evil. It does not, and much even less celebratory of perversion. I'm using it here, the sense of being gentle, of being forgiving, of being patient. So we're not talking about mousiness. We're not talking about moral spinelessness that just kind of goes along with everything and is, is great with it. Meekness is strong because it is a voluntary holding back, like our, like our master. It's not this externally imposed subjugation where you've just been so beat down, you're like, okay, I'm not going to speak up, but a, this voluntary gentleness 
like Jesus displayed. Meekness does not throw its weight around in order to get its way. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his magnificent uh, study, if you want to study on the Sermon on the Mount, goodness, uh, he, he writes this, The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That's interesting, right? The opposite of meekness would be, oh, I was wrong. I can't believe someone treated me the way that they treated me. Meekness is like, man, if God knows what he knows about me, and if people know what God knows about me, the fact that people treat me as kindly as they do, pure grace. That, that's the attitude of meekness. The meek person does not demand status or reflexively defend himself at every turn. So sometimes the litmus test is this. It's one thing I can, you know, we, we, we come to celebrate communion and we have our time of, of confession. Oh, God, I'm a sinner and I'm awful. And then you walk out of church and someone's like, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And they confront you about sin and you get all defensive about it. Meekness is where if God sees me that way and other people see me that way, it's, it's okay, I can respond in humility. You see, if I can confess my sin to God but then become immediately incensed when someone else points it out, there's pride in my heart, not meekness. Second half of the verse is, they shall inherit the earth. Jesus here is basically riffing on Psalm 37, verse 11. Um, I'm going to just go back there, and if you want to go there, Psalm 37 gives us really, again, the Old Testament backdrop. I hope you can see how the, the Old Testament and the New Testament come together. Psalm 37, verse 11 says, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Okay, what does the meek person look like? In the context of Psalm 37, the meek is looking around and seeing, look at them. The wicked are flourishing. God, what is going on? How does he respond? I'll look back at verse 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, and those that wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth. In other words, the meek person is the one who says, God is going to judge in the end. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. I don't have to be all worked up and agitated and angry about whatever I just saw this morning on the news. God's going to deal with it. I can patiently await his intervention to settle it, to vindicate everything. Now, the Sermon on the Mount really assumes this attitude of meekness. Jesus says, someone hits you on the, the, the cheek, you turn to him the other also. That's impossible to do if you're like, there's going to be justice here and now. But if you're like, God's going to be the one who's going to vindicate all of the, the, the wrong that is done, this ethic of non-retaliation that's required in the Sermon on the Mount and by the New Testament requires meekness. So notice the reward back in Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. If you were to say, to, say, say today, my destiny is to one day inherit the world, is world domination, most people would be like, what kind of megalomaniac are you to think that you're going to dominate the world? And yet Jesus is saying, my people, the ones who are humble, they're the ones who are going to one day rule the world. They're going to inherit the earth. We're going to inherit, according to Romans 8, God's glory one day. And the earth here is not referring to just, you know, the land in the Middle East. In the Old Testament, that was the, the referent. 
Here the, the reference is expanded to the new heaven and the new earth. One day God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and all those who are his people will inherit all things. That means I can be content because, in a sense, I already have everything. Normally, we would assume it's the self-assertive. If we were writing a modern-day Beatitudes, it would say, Blessed are the self-assertive, for they shall get what they want. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. You see, the ethic of fallen man is kind of Darwinian, right? It's the idea of the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. Most societies have operated along those terms. Survival of the fittest, whether that's the strongest, whether that's the majority, whether that's the ruling class, and everybody else can be kind of pushed to the side. But because of Jesus, that gets completely inverted. Morally speaking, there's only one person who is truly fit and perfect, and it's Jesus. And we are the ones who are morally and spiritually the weakest. And in the kingdom of God, it is because of the sacrifice of the fittest, Jesus, that we have the salvation of the weakest, you and me. This kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It is one in which the the meek, not the self-assertive, inherit. It's one in which the mourners rejoice, the one in which the poor possess. It's the one in which the hungry are satisfied. Which brings us to this final characteristic that we will look at today. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hungering and thirsting. Maybe you didn't get breakfast this morning. Right about now, your stomach is beginning to growl, and your mind is beginning to think about which restaurant you might be able to get to in time if Pastor Sam lands the plane at a decent hour. Uh, But have you ever been truly hungry before where you're like, man, I have not eaten two, three, four meals in a row. Like It is pretty hard to think about just about anything else. Even more so with water, right? If you're out there in the desert, you're out there on a long hike, and I've done this a couple of times growing up in Arizona, you go off on a hike and you're like, oh, it'll be quick, and you don't take enough water with you. And by the end of it, you're looking around like, man, I think there's water and cactuses. Like, maybe we could try that out. Uh, when you get hungering and thirsting, that is a insatiable desire. It's not just a, you know, I think I might eat today if I feel like it. Rather, no, it's an, I better eat today because if I don't, there's, <laughs> like, no, you, it, it is this longing. Just as the hungry cannot be satisfied with anything other than food, so the Christian can be satisfied with nothing less than righteousness. Some people today will say the way to be happy is to chase after happiness. Uh, it's sort of like trying to plug a, a power strip into itself in order to get power. It doesn't work that way. You don't. No, the way to find to find true happiness that is this true state of blessing is not to chase after it in its own sake. It is to chase after God. It is to chase after righteousness. It is to chase after holiness. Trying to just be happy in its own sake is like taking an ice cube and saying, "I'm going to hold it really tightly so I don't lose it," or saying, "This bar of soap." The way that I'm going to make sure I hang on to the bar of soap is to squeeze it as tight as I, as I can. Uh, ping, shoot way out. No, if instead you chase after righteousness, you will be satisfied. God is the one who has created us in his image to be worshipers. He, we were created for face-to-face fellowship with the God of all glory We were created to know a God who is infinite in every way. 
And that is why in our fallen state, we, we can't find anything in this world that can quite fit the bill. That's why we have a thirst that is sort of like satisfied with salt water when we try to satisfy it with sin. We have been made to know a God who is righteous. And all the longings that we feel in our hearts, all the longings that this world feels and is chasing after for, 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 for joy, for happiness, for fulfillment, is reflective of the fact that we were made to know God. Right? It's reflective of the fact that we were made for something so much greater than binging Netflix. Jesus is saying the truly happy person is not just the one who longs for stuff. By the way, think about how different, how opposite this is from like Buddhism that says your problem is that you desire, so stop desiring. Desire to not desire, and then you'll be happy. So no, you need to desire righteousness, true righteousness. Now, this could mean a couple of different things. The background of the Old Testament, righteousness sometimes meant God coming and setting the world to rights, right? God coming and everything is messed up, making it right. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. The, the whole tenor of the sermon is about my righteousness before God. It is all about how I live a righteous life before God. Now, the other question we have to ask, is Jesus talking about positional righteousness, justified by faith, declared righteous in God's sight, or practical righteousness, how we live our lives? And I think the answer is the second of those two, because, again, the whole sermon is about how we as Christians live a righteous life in the sight of God. In other words, this is a longing to do the will of God. This is a longing that should be in the heart of every Christian to say, my deepest desire is to obey God. My deepest desire is to know his will and to do it. Is a longing for that kind of life, a longing to reflect God's character both inwardly and outwardly. It is a longing to be free from sin. It is a longing to be free from the very desire for sin. It is a longing to be rid of sinful habits and sinful desires and sinful inclinations. It is a longing to be positively and utterly devoted to God, to have a righteousness in my daily life that is greater than that of even the Pharisees. It is a longing to be complete and perfect before God, to have a, uh, a, a relationship with God that is for Him. It is to seek first the kingdom and, its right, and His righteousness. Just the person who longs like that, they're going to be the ones who are truly satisfied in the end. They shall be filled. They shall be satisfied. They shall be, after Thanksgiving dinner, three courses stuffed full to where you don't want any more. He says, that is the destiny for those who long. Now, what are we going to be satisfied with? Righteousness. So this happens in a sense here and now. With all of these, these promises, there's a sense in which we're comforted now by God's forgiveness, and we'll be ultimately comforted then. There's a sense in which we're filled now, that God progressively makes us more like Jesus, and one day we will be perfectly like Jesus. Understand this, this side of heaven, the longing for righteousness, is never going to be perfectly and finally satisfied. Right? Until we get to heaven, we're always going to be growing and pressing on and forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out for the things that are before we should never get into a place where we're like, you know what? I've arrived. We should never get to a place where even if we don't say those words, we should never like, I mean, I've already read the Bible two or three times. What else is there for me to learn? We should never get to a place where we're like, you know what? I, I, I've kind of kicked the, you know, the really bad habits that used to define my life. There's nothing more to do. If, we, if you are in that place, you're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 
If you're in a place where there's not a, a longing to be more like Christ, it could be that you do not belong to Christ. It could be that you don't desire righteousness because you're not even being declared righteous by him. Now, if you say, what does this look like? I, I, need, I need something practical, like hard and fast to evaluate. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount pretty much does that. It's not just avoiding murdering people, but it's rooting out anger. It's not just avoiding adultery, it's rooting out lust, and so on. Now, here's the beauty of this. What Jesus is describing to us, he's saying, this is the truly good life. Every time you turn on TV, turn on the radio, listen to Pandora or Spotify or and now you know more and more streaming services, you're getting commercials all the time. And commercials are selling you a vision of what they think the good life is. And here's this new car, and it does this cool thing that your old car doesn't. Here's this new product, and look at the people with that product. They have friends, and they're smiling, and they're happy. The ones that always get me are the pharmaceutical commercials. For people, you know, like this horrible condition, and this thing has, like, terrible side effects. You've got your hair is going to catch fire. And people are just walking around with their dog and playing pickleball with their friends. There's the good life. Jesus is like, that's not the good life. The good life is being poor in spirit. The good life is mourning over sin. The good life is being that meek, gentle, tolerant person. The good life is longing for hungering and thirsting after righteousness. See, that's where it's at. You live that way, you're the person that others on the, the last day will be like, oh, to be that person. They're the ones who in the kingdom will have everlasting joy. The good life, the life of true flourishing is not about being rich. It's not about the people having a good time. It's not about being powerful or self-satisfied. Rather, it's the very categories Jesus presents here. The very values Jesus commends and celebrates. He himself models perfectly. That's where I want to end today. None of us perfectly look like the Beatitudes, but Jesus does. So we look to him who took our place. We look to him who is the perfect example. Does this describe you? God, would you give us a longing and desire for what is actually in our best interests? Not to settle for the salt water of this world to try to slake our thirst but to drink of the living water. If you're here today, and you're hearing me describe this, and you're like, this is not me. I'm not poor in spirit. I'm trusting in myself to get into the kingdom. I would urge you today to turn to Christ with all of your heart. I'm standing, I'll be standing in the back here in just a minute. While we sing, here's what I would urge you to do. If you say, I'm tired of fighting this. I'm tired of pretending. I'm try tired of being a play actor. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Come back and talk to me. I would love to take a Bible and explain further what it means to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And Christian, this is not just a diagnostic to show us why we need Jesus. This is how we're meant to live.